we started last week uh, a short series that we're going to do, uh, looking at what we've called our purpose and our practices. And um, last week we spent the whole time just talking about what we're what we're calling our purpose. Sometimes churches have talked about a vision or whatever, and we, we actually, as the leaders have been praying about this, we felt like we didn't want to talk about it in the terms of vision, just this big kind of out there thing, but we wanted to talk about who is it God has called us to be? What is our purpose? Why are we here? And we, I said, shared last week, we'd been round and round and we had various different versions of it, and sometimes they had lots of words, and sometimes they complicated. And then after a while, we landed uh, on this. Loving God and loving others. It's not complicated. It's not new. It's something Jesus said. And this is why it's important to us, because actually there's nothing complicated or new about the church. We've been around for 2,000 years. If we've got something new to say, we probably should be careful, because The church has thought about these things. So loving God and loving others became this real uh, kind of center point for us as we were praying about not only what we would become, but a sense of how do we express who we are already. We're not trying to come up with something new and say we've got to do it all different. In fact, we were quite clear that that wasn't what God was asking us to do. That God has been at work in this place and he continues to be at work in this place. And what we want to talk about is how do we want to express what God is doing and then with the aspirational sense of there's still more to do. Does that make sense? So that's what we spent last week talking about. And um, if you, uh, if you have, weren't here, then I'd encourage you to go to the website and uh, have a listen. It's a dead short sermon. It was, this, I think, the shortest sermon I've preached since I got here. It was 20 minutes, which was remarkable. Remarkable. Today's might be a little longer. Not much though, hopefully. So we talked last week about purpose. This kind of direction setting thing. This overall sense of being able to talk about who we are. And what was, it was really encouraging afterwards to speak with people. And uh, one person said to me, look Glenn, I was really worried about what you were going to say. I was really concerned about what words you were going to put up there. And then you put up loving God and loving others. And I thought, oh, I can do that. And I was like, yes, that's what we're after. That's exactly the attitude that we're looking for. Yes, I recognize this. Yes, I can do that. But that question of doing it became the second part that we've spent a lot of time talking together as leaders. How do we put this into practice? Because it's all well and good having a big juicy strap line, but if you don't know how that becomes real, how does that get legs? How does that get hands and feet? How does that get dirty in the real world? Then who knows? And so often when churches or organizations have talked about vision alongside it, they'll talk about some values and they become the ways that they think they want to express some of this stuff. We, we decided we would take a different tack. So we're going to talk about practices. What are the things we do? What are the steps we take on the path that allow us to evermore be the kind of place where we love God and love others? So we have eight practices we came up with. So you're all going to be fully expected to memorize them all. I'm only a little bit joking. Um, 
I'm going to read you all eight just now. Uh, we're going to talk about the first four today, and then we'll talk about the second four uh, tomorrow. They're, they're not split like that. It's just I, if I was here talking about eight, we'd be here until next week, and nobody wants that. Here's the language we've used. Relying upon the grace, mercy, patience, kindness, power, and love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will express our purpose using these practices. We will meet together, adults and children, to listen to God, to learn about God, to worship God, and to put his words into practice. We will share our lives with one another, celebrate our faith together, eat meals together, have fun together, and laugh together. The third one, we will love one another and be loved. Four, we will forgive one another and be forgiven. Five, we will challenge and encourage one another and be encouraged and challenged. We will welcome all and do all we can to help others to trust and follow Jesus. Seven, we will serve the community of Portobello and surrounding areas, reaching out in love and seeking its peace and prosperity. And finally, we will join God on his mission in the world. Those are the eight things. And right now, they were just words that came to you. But I'm hoping that they're going to become something that come alive for us over the course of the next few years as we journey with these. And that's the important thing. This isn't just something we're going to talk about now and then we'll forget about. We'll put it in a drawer and it'll get dusty. But actually, this is something we want to learn how to live out, that we might become ever more the kind of people that reflect this kind of purpose and practice, who love God and love others. The four that we have. We will meet together, adults and children, to listen to God, to learn about God, to worship God, and to put his words into practice. I want to read us two Bible verses. They'll appear on the screen up here. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then secondly, Hebrews 10.25, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. I read an article this week where the guy said this. He said, one human would not enjoy God as much as many humans together. That's why it matters that we gather together. Did you hear that? One human would not enjoy God as much as many humans together. He was talking about this passage in Genesis. He's asking why before the fall was something not good. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And his argument, which is very long, but 
fixed in this sentence, one human would not enjoy God as much as many humans together. That's why God made a multiplicity of humans. And that's why we gather. Because it makes sense. Together we enjoy God more than if we were just on our own. Should we enjoy God on our own? For sure we should. Absolutely. We should do that. But we gather together. Adults and children together. It's a multi-voiced congregation. We're going to practice what that looks like. We need to get better at it. But it shouldn't just be one person at the front doing all the talking and all the singing and all the everything else. But actually we should together be listening to one another, listening to God together, hearing the voice of God together and sharing that. And so then our meetings have a purpose, this purpose of loving God and loving others. Not as somehow separate things that we do, but together. And so we gather together today at a church meeting, for example. And that's not different than gathering here on a Sunday. We're here to worship, to love God, to love others. And that's what we're doing downstairs too. When we come to talk about things that are going on, we are loving God and loving others when we meet together. And we listen to one another. And I was thinking, what would be an example I could give the church of how this is something that works? But I don't need to give you an example because actually I'm going to rely on what Paul said in Hebrews. He said, let us not give up meeting together as some are in, as some are in the habit of doing. We know, all know people who've thought, I'm kind of done with church. Right? And we all know people like that. And, so, and oftentimes that's the church's fault that people have got there. So I'm not blaming these people. But they think, I can walk with Jesus apart from the church and it will be fine. You know what, I've, I've been a minister for 15, 16 years now. I've been a Christian for 26. And I have never seen anybody that that works for. People who say, I'm done with church, I'm just, I'll be fine with Jesus on my own. It doesn't work. Meeting together really matters. It's an intrinsic part of our faith. Next one. We will share our lives with one another, celebrate our faith together, eat meals together, have fun and laugh together. I love this. This feels like what church should be. I'm not sure it always works out like this. But this is what we want to be. We want to be a place where we share our lives with one another. We're going to read another passage. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. And we're going to read in uh, verse 45 and 46. I think it will come up here. 44 and 45, yeah. Um, All the believers, so this is the founding of the earliest church. We've just had the day of Pentecost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what they did when they gathered. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They shared their lives together. They ate in their homes together. They gave as they had, as others had need. 
sharing was at the very heart of what it meant for the earliest church to express what the earliest church was. And we discover later that actually the world around watched that and they were amazed. And that's no different today. That as we share our lives with one another, people look on and go, I'm not sure that's normal. And they're right. But it is beautiful. And we've used language in there of celebration, of togetherness, of having fun and laughter. Because here's the thing, the Christian faith all too often is something that's kind of marked out as kind of boring. A little bit beige. Does that make sense? But we're not meant to be like that. We should be the most joy-filled, happy people on earth. Because God has done great things. We sure of that? We are sure that God has done good things. I... when we were in Vancouver, the church we were at there had a, had a Sunday morning, uh, had a whole week of um, prayer and fasting. We were seeking God for what God was asking us to do. We, were, we had to leave the building we were meeting in at that time. We were very unclear about where we were going, and so we'd called the church to pray and fast. And we, we had this amazing week of God speaking, and then on the Sunday, we just left it open. We sang a couple of songs and then said, right, come and share what you think God has said uh, to you through the course of the week. It was a profoundly powerful uh, day, and we, we, God spoke. But I, I have this vivid memory of um, this woman coming up, and there'd been a lot shared about being a, a, a people who were really invested in one another and in the community around us, and our church was probably about 80 or 90 people at this point. And um, Sarah got up front and she said, uh, I don't know how to do a lot of the things we've talked about. And she was talking particularly about things like evangelism and uh, you know, sharing her faith with people and getting involved in the local community. She was just honest. She said, I don't know how to do a lot of that stuff. But I do know that I can share my life and I can share my home. And it was profoundly moving. I, this, was, this was an incredibly intelligent woman. She was a professor at the university. And she just came up and humbly said, I don't know how to do these other things. But I do know that I can share my life. And actually, her speaking that out and then walking that out, her and her husband opening their home and just became a place that people would hang out, became one of the most significant moments in the growth of that church. Because one person was willing to say, I will share my life. And that's what they did. So, we will share our lives together. We will love one another and be loved. John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. is speaking and he says this a new command I give you love one another 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Maybe the most challenging call in the New Testament, to love one another, no matter what, to love one another. And actually, some of these things we've talked about, about sharing life, and we're going to talk about forgiveness in a moment, all of those actually could be expressions of loving one another. But Jesus says, this one command I give you, love one another. When I read this this week, I thought, I'm pretty sure this appears in quite a lot of places in the New Testament. This is an example. I couldn't fit them all on the, on the page. John 15, Romans 13, 1 John 3, 1 John 3 again, 1 John 4, 2 John chapter 1, 1 Peter, Gospel of John again, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, all contain these words, love one another. Not just so that we will be loved, though that's true, but as an expression of the love we have received from God, we then will love one another, and the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. So it's not just an internal thing. This has mission significance. As we love one another, we say something to the world. We all know churches that have practiced very well not loving one another, and the world sees that, right? We all know examples of that. But can we have examples where our love for one another is what we become known for? That we are unusually loving unusually caring, unusually kind. This is Jesus' command. And this is the first of our, of our practices that we have used this little phrase, we will love one another and be loved. Because loving is an action that I do, but to be loved is an action that you do, or vice versa. We have to be willing to be loved. We can close off and not allow people to in, not allow people to help, not allow people to share with us. It means that we ha- all have to be actively involved in this exercise. It doesn't work if it's just some people trying to do this. This has to be something we all commit to, to loving and to being loved. Maybe the best example I know of this was a a young couple got saved. Uh, They'd been living together uh, for a number of years, and they were living in a city that cost an absolute fortune to live in. They weren't in Edinburgh, but they might as well have been. Um, They built their economic system around living together. They couldn't afford to live separately, um, except they now knew that as they'd given their lives to Jesus, living together wasn't really the best for them, but it seemed to be the only option. They couldn't do anything else. There was no space for that. Anyway, Adam asked Janine to marry him, and uh, uh, Janine said yes. That was good. Um, And then we had to figure out what were we going to do as a church? Did we just say, oh, it's all right, just live together and nobody minds? We didn't want to do that because we didn't believe that was true. Except we also knew 
that this couple genuinely couldn't afford to do anything else. And then one of the leaders in our church stepped up and he said, we have a spare room. Why doesn't Adam come and live with us? Rent free, all his food, everything, until they get married. And so that's what happened. For just over a year, Adam went and lived with Reed and Aloha. It was loving to say to them, you, you, can't, you shouldn't do this. This is not good. It was loving to understand that they couldn't afford to do anything else. But the most loving thing was to say, come live with us for a year. Don't worry about your food bills or anything else. I'm sure they regret that because Adam is a big lad and he can eat. But uh, that's what they did. It's this incredible experience of loving one another. And then here was the kicker. They had to be willing to be loved in that way. Adam had to be willing to go and live with that family. Otherwise, it didn't work. But Adam was willing because he he wanted to honor Jesus. And uh, that's what we ended up with. So it became a profound experience of God's love being shown among us. I'm going to finish with this one today. We will forgive one another and be forgiven. Those are great words, aren't they? They just trip off the tongue. This is among the most difficult things to do, I think. To be genuinely hurt or offended. Not not just in a little way, not, not somebody parked in your parking spot kind of a way, but somebody who has betrayed you, turned your life upside down, let you down in a profound manner. To learn to forgive that person, to genuinely choose forgiveness. And and let me be clear, forgiveness is a choice. I mean, this is a sermon on itself, but forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. And it's a choice you make to speak the words, I forgive you. And then it's a choice you will make every day to live that out. Again, dozens of places we could go in the scriptures to talk about forgiveness and the call to forgiveness. I just want us to read one uh, this morning. Uh, Colossians 3 and verses 13. It says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. There's a couple of things going on here that are significant. One is the call to forgive one another in the context of the fact that we are a forgiven people. We pray the Lord's Prayer. The forgiveness in there seems conditional, right? God's forgiveness to us comes as we forgive others. Here, we have been forgiven by God, and then we need to express that forgiveness to others. That's tough. That's really, really difficult. But it's essential. If we are going to be this community that learns what it is to, lo- to be a community that is loving God and loving others, then we will need to learn what it is to forgive. That's one of the re- necessary steps on the road. I, 
I love the way Paul writes in this passage and in others. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. He assumes this will happen in the church. He's not blinded. He's not pretending the church is perfect and nobody will ever hurt one another. Nobody will ever speak in a way that is disappointing or upsetting or frankly just offensive. He assumes that that will happen because we're human. And so when we gather together, when we get into relational spaces, people come up against one another. The question isn't, will that happen in the church? The question is, what will we do about it? In what way will we be any different to any other community? In what way will we differ from the bowling club? You see, if they fall out in the bowling club, you just leave the bowling club and go to another bowling club. Or you dig your heels in and make a big stooshy about it because I've been here and my granny was here and my... And you can do that in the bowling club. And it's almost reasonable behaviour. It's unacceptable in the church. Forgiveness as offered and forgiveness as received is necessary. Necessary if we are ever going to be the kind of place that sees God's kingdom come in Portobello. How does this all work out? Paul assumes we're going to have these problems. He assumes we're not going to storm off and leave, go away in the huff, but we'll bear with one another. We'll do the hard work. Because God has forgiven us. There's an Amish community. And in 2006, a guy walked into their schoolhouse with three guns. There were 26 students. They allowed the 15 boys, a pregnant female student, and three other adult females with infant children to leave safely. But held the other 15 girls captive and tied their feet together. had a problem in his past. He blamed the Amish community for some reason for the death of his newborn daughter. The authorities were alerted and they arrived on the scene and not long after that the guy started shooting. He killed three children, ultimately five of them because two later died of their injuries and then he killed himself. Amish communities are small and close-knit They're not huge. Everybody knew somebody who'd been in that school. In the face of such a tragedy, you can only imagine the kind of hurt and pain and anger that would exist, right? And reasonably so. Those are utterly normal, proper uh, emotions to have. But the Amish community did some extraordinary things. They went to that gentleman's funeral in order to comfort his widow. Not only that, but they recognized that as a widow, she was now in a vulnerable situation, and they offered to look after her, to give her all that she needed, finance, place to live, all of that kind of thing. Forgiveness has the power to change things, but it's extraordinarily difficult to do. And we just need to be honest about that. 
and yet recognize that at the very core of the gospel, and we're going to finish today by taking communion, but at the very core of the gospel is the recognition that Jesus gave his life that we might be forgiven. He was doing lots more on the cross. He was doing even more in the resurrection. But at its very least, he was making sure that we are forgiven. It is not okay for us then not to offer that forgiveness to others. We are fully aware and will celebrate the fact it cost Jesus everything for our forgiveness. Be aware that choosing to forgive someone will cost you. It is painful and difficult. And yet, it brings a life that you could never have hoped for otherwise. As someone once said, the idea that not forgiving someone does something to them is like the idea of drinking poison and assuming that they will get unwell. It's madness. It doesn't work. All we do is eat ourselves up. And so we don't forgive because it's good for us. But the nice benefit on the sideline is exactly this. If you forgive, it is good for you. It is good for your soul. It will bring life and joy and hope to you. So, four things today. I'm tempted to ask you to tell me what they are, but that could be dangerous, so I'm not going to. We will meet together. We will share life together. We will love one another, and we will forgive one another. Next week we'll talk about the other four and I will also talk about a kind of intro prelude part to it. Because here's the thing that I don't want you to hear. Our expectation is that as we learn to love God and love others, you have to work harder. You have to do more stuff. Because we've been preaching through this series on the unforced rhythms of grace and what have we been saying over and over again? This is not about trying harder. And so it's profoundly important that we remember that we can only do these things as we rely on the grace and the mercy and the patience and the kindness and the power and the love of God at work in us. And we will trust in that. And so we'll carry that on next week. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion together. Um, do we have people set up for, for communion today? There are servers. Good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have made clear in your scriptures the kinds of things we're meant to do. And uh, I thank you that you are leading us and have been leading us and have been speaking with us and have been doing good work in our church for decades. And as we continue that, as we are called to continue to work to see your kingdom uh, established and uh, your kingdom uh, built in this community and around the world. We step into these practices, not as law, not as a burden, but as a joyful way of expressing together what it is to love you and to love others. So would you help us with that, Lord? Would you empower us to be those kinds of people? 